Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 232. And my guest for today is April Sambun. She is a political candidate who is running for New York City Council here in District 33, which includes the neighborhood that I live in. And I'm really interested in her because she's not like a lot of other politicians that I've heard from and seen. She's also got a really great story. I'll let her tell you that in the conversation that we have. But we covered some important things that aren't just important for New York. So wherever you're listening from, I think that you may be able to identify with and connect with a lot of the topics that we talked about. We have ranked choice voting for the first time here in New York. And early voting actually starts tomorrow. Tomorrow is Saturday the what? Saturday the 12th. And so I'm going to be ranking her number one. I hope if you are in this area, you do so. And again, if you aren't in the area, I hope you can take something from this conversation that will be important to you. Go to the show notes for this episode. And as always, there will be hyperlinks to April's websites. She's got this great feature on her site uh, that shows people from the district that she is representing, and it has short little interviews with them, and it's really great. I recommend that you check that out. We recorded this conversation today at a coffee shop called One Girl Cookies in Dumbo, right by the water in Brooklyn. And so you're going to hear some stuff in the background, like beans grinding at different times, but I don't know. I actually think that's kind of cool. I like the sort of unique ambiance to the episodes that are particular to the place that they were recorded in. All right, I've also got a Patreon account and that will be linked in the show notes as well. And you know what that is, but it's a subscription-based service and you give monthly and you get some cool kickbacks like the zines I do or shirts and stickers and stuff from around the world. Okay, folks, enjoy this conversation with April Sambun. Tomorrow is early the start voting. of early voting. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you nervous? No, I'm actually excited and optimistic. I'm, you know, early voting starts tomorrow, and people who vote early are the ones who actually know what they're doing. So I'm excited. Yeah, I early voted for the first time in the primary, I think, before the last election. And it, it was empty in there. It was actually quite a pleasant experience because it's super easy. Yeah, I just want to get it done so I can continue like canvassing and talking to more voters and not have to think about it on the day of June 22nd. Yeah. So, Will you find out that day? No, we will not find out on June 22nd um, unless someone gets 50 plus 1 um, percent uh, because it's ranked choice voting. Yeah. So uh, the Board of Elections has stated that um, they will probably not start counting the absentee ballots until after July 4th. Whoa. Yeah. So we might not even know who our next mayor is until August. Wow. I'm, I'm going to, I will chronologically build out your story, but yeah. can you just explain ranked choice voting? Because I think for a lot of people, especially if they don't vote in local elections, 
that's maybe a newer concept for them. Yeah, it's a brand new concept here in New York City. Ranked choice voting gives um, voters the opportunity to rank their top five candidates and your vote goes further um, and you have a larger voice in it. Um, I think over 76% of New Yorkers voted for this. And so this is the largest ranked choice voting in the United States of America Whoa. for the first time. And um, so you get to rank up to five candidates um, from mayoral all the way down to um, city council. And um, your first pick is like your number one pick that you want to win. Number two, you, you're excited about, but you know, and then five being like your least favorite, but you can live with them. Mm -hmm. And what happens is if no one gets the majority 50 um, percent plus one, um, they eliminate the last candidate and those votes go and re get redistributed to the other candidates until mm -hmm. someone gets a majority of the votes. I've voted in every, well, in every, the presidential elections I've been able to vote in were the second Bush presidency, both Obama's, and then these last two. So I've, I've voted in five. Um, my opinion, but the only one that I really felt strongly behind was Obama's first presidency. Yes. And I think there are a lot of people across the country that share the sentiment that like, I'm often voting as like the anti-vote because I don't like the other person, but I'm not crazy about the choice that I'm voting for. It would seem to me like the most obvious choice would be to do ranked choice voting because you can have a larger and more diverse pool of candidates, like, mm -hmm. doesn't that seem simple? <laughs> yeah, and I voted for ranked choice voting. It, it helps me, it helps um, people of color, it helps people who don't have a lot of money to be able to run, to be able to actually have a, um, to be able to actually have a chance to win in an election. A lot of the times that the people who do win are the ones who raise a lot of money and who are part of the institution or the machine. And yeah. this has opened up the field to so many incredible human beings that have such a different voice, but also a voice that is of New York City in regards to the diversity and um, where the city's going. Mm. And that's, you know, and ranked choice voting is supposed to hopefully help work in my favor. Like, I have a lot of hope. Yeah. I mean, so that was, and my terminology is going to be incorrect. But it's almost like articles, right? Like when you vote in a, when you vote in a, a local or state election, you have um, almost like, again, my terminology is off here, but like different topics on things. So like in California, they had something about like legalizing medicinal marijuana and then marijuana and all those types of things. So I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's how we got ranked choice voting in New yeah, York? Yeah, it was a referendum. Referendum, thank you, yeah. Correct, yeah, a referendum that we all voted for in last election um, cycle. And some people didn't know what they were voting for, but um, yeah, it, like I said, over 70, I think 4%, 75% of New Yorkers voted for this. Do you know how that would come to pass in a presidential election, would that be something that the government passes or do we also vote on a sort of national referendum? I, I have no idea how it would right? work on a presidential election, yeah. but I think it would be so cool to have ranked choice voting at a presidential election that it's not just one or the other, you know, that you actually get to pick and choose who you like. And yeah. I equate this to people are like, oh, 
you know, it's making it harder. But I go, we rank our choices every single day. One thing I rank a lot when I'm with my kids is when I go to the ice cream shop. I'm like, <laughs> okay, what flavors would you guys like? And then they start thinking about it. They're like, oh, I think my favorite's chocolate. But no, today I really want strawberry, you know? So you're already ranking. And you're like ranking when you're ordering your meal at dinner. You're trying to figure out what you want as your favorite. And if they don't have your favorite dish, they ran out, you go to your second favorite dish. Yeah, and I think you, you, you sort of touched on the fact that like, and, and this is like maybe more how I feel, but that often the two choices we get are sort of two sides of the same coin. And the, the, the differences are kind of surface level. Mm. Um, but in terms of sort of like keeping the structure of the system in place, both sides often want to do that. So to have more people at least, at, at the very least there to open up new ideas to people that yes. they could see while they are either canvassing or debating or whatever it is, at least can start to get a dialogue going, I would think. But yeah, it starts a dialogue, but also with ranked choice voting, it, it makes the voter have to do research. Mm. Because you have to go and find out more about your candidates because now you get to pick five, mm. and which is great. Before, you're like this or this. Yep. You know, now it's like, oh, wow, I, ha I could get behind five people that I could live with mm. and be really excited about. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, again, uh, thanks for doing this. Of um, I'm, I was interested in this for a number of reasons. Um, one being that I live in Williamsburg and um, we're changing apartments, so we're going to stay somewhere in Williamsburg or Greenpoint. Um, and I've seen you out there on social media canvassing, so I'm in your district. But also, I've had a lot of content from Lao Americans, and mm -hmm. it's a portion of the world that I've gone to often and will continue to go back to. And um, because of that, and because I've been supported by like the Lao American community, both by people coming on the podcast and just through friendship, I feel it's also my duty to have as many Lao Americans on the podcast That's awesome. as possible. Thank you for giving us a voice. Yeah, you know there the aren't a lot least. of us. Like I was telling you earlier, there are less than a thousand of us in New York City. And I, I make a joke to my a few Lao friends that I have in New York City. I go, I added to that population by two with my two kids. <laughs> yeah. It is the reason for that because many Lao families started here as refugees and there were certain locations where, like, I think Washington... Um, maybe there's Minnesota where um, like Lao families were, were set up when they came over. Yeah, so it depend, it, it's all dependent on where you were sponsored or mm. where there were a big group of community of Lao people who could actually bring you over after the Vietnam War, right? right. Um, and the communist regime took over. Um, the highest, I think the largest population is in Elgin, Illinois in the Minnesota oh. area. And then there's a lot in Washington, there are a lot of Lao people in Washington State and California. But here in New York, um, there, are, there are a lot of um, Lao people in um, Long Island. Really? Yeah, yeah. I used to have this woman deliver food to me and she stopped doing it. And so I, that was how I got my Lao kick like once a week. She would no make way. a week's worth of food and she stopped because, she, you know, she's busy with her own work. <laughs> Wow, man, I'd love to talk to her. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I grew amazing. up on Long Island. I, yeah, yeah. 
Wow. I have no idea where in Long Island, yeah. but she's in Long Island. She would drive into the city on Sunday and drop off the food orders. Oh, man, I'm jealous. It was delicious for like that three weeks. Wow. So your story starts, um, I guess, with Laos, but in Washington? Yeah, no, um, I was actually born in a refugee camp um, in Thailand. So my mom was pregnant with me at the age of 17, and she crossed over the Mekong um, River um, with her, my grandmother and some of her siblings. My grandmother left um, one of my uncles back, but um, by choice. But so my mom had me in a refugee camp. So I was actually born in the northern part of Thailand, where a lot of the um, refugees were waiting to immigrate to mm. the U.S. But I grew up my whole entire life um, in Washington State. Yeah, in Vancouver, Washington. Do you still have family in Laos? My grandmother's sister is there, whom I met years ago when I went to Laos for the first time with my, um, I guess, my then boyfriend, who's now my husband. <laughs> um, and she's in Luang Prabang, which is oh, where okay. my family's from. Oh, amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't in Laos for long, but that's where I was. And when you're traveling, especially like when you're young and you're backpacking and you're doing a lot of cities, it's like the perfect antidote to that because it is so much calmer <laughs> than yeah. like big metropolis. Yeah, the saying is like, Bopenyang, right? No worries. Yeah. Life is good. It's easy. It's slow. Um, yeah, it was really nice. Now, I obviously have not gone through the experience of being a refugee in America, but of from conversations where I've talked to people, I know that that's not an easy experience. There can be a language barrier, potentially a cultural barrier, difficulty potentially finding work. Um, did you go through these sorts of hardships when you were growing up? I, I watched, I witnessed my family to go, go through it. Um, you know, we came with nothing and my um, mom had to go to school and get her GED, but also everybody had to work. Um, and I was with my grandmother a lot. She's the one who cared for me and, um, you know, we were poor. Um, I mean, some of my family members are still poor and struggling, right? Mm-hmm. But um, luckily my, my mom is my inspiration and she works, she still works today and um, to provide and she takes, she's the main caretaker of my grandmother. And, um, but yeah, we lived in low income housing and I'm grateful for the government assistance that we received when we came to America. We were, we were on food stamps to help us get by, but it was like supplemental income or, you know, while um, everybody worked and we lived in an apartment, like I said, um, in low-income housing. And then once we got, um, once we got, you know, situated, then we got out of the system. It was a hand up and it was really nice. And I think... I'm grateful for that government assistance. Right. And that's why I'm like happy to give back and happy to pay the taxes because I benefited from it. And I know other families can benefit from it right now too. Yeah. I I might get on my soapbox for a second here, but that's your experiences are refreshing to me because I live here in New York city. I work here in the school systems. There are many people in New York city also growing up in public housing, um, you know, government housing. And 
while there were people leaving Laos because of the, gov the communist government, the Petet Lao, mm -hmm. the United States also had a hand in destabilizing the region. And maybe this is my opinion. I think, you know, I think it's, it's fact that like Henry Kissinger kind of indiscriminately bombed the hell out of Cambodia and Laos. And there is a pattern of that. Like we, we being the, our country, has had a hand in Latin America and Mexico, either with the current drug war or with destabilizing uh, political elections from <laughs> Nixon to Reagan on up to today. And so often there's a narrative that's kind of like a social Darwinism narrative that like people are coming to this country because of the, the countries they're in can't run themselves, right? Or people are leaving because they're coming to the United States for these handouts or something like that. When it's like, these are really complicated issues, but the United States has had a hand in creating situations that people are leaving from. Um, so it was, I mean, for me, really disheartening the other day to hear our current administration say, you know, to folks coming up in Mexico, don't come. Um, and I, I, I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that, like, that can't be the narrative. You, it, it is legal to seek asylum. People that come to the United States aren't just hanging out on the couch, like, collecting piles of money. <laughs> I mean, some are, but a majority are not. And, mm -hmm. I, and I totally understand your sentiment is that people come here for a better life. They come here for economic opportunity. Um, it may not be the greatest economic opportunity, and there are a lot of struggles, right? But it's certainly way better than the current corrupt government or that they're in right now. And um, a lot of people come over the border to be able to work and send money back. Mm. And, um, and we have to give America as a place of refuge, I believe. I got that opportunity. Um, without that opportunity, I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be running for city council. I wouldn't have the public education that I received. I don't know what my life would be like in Laos. And honestly, I don't want to know, mm -hmm. you know? And, and I think that, you know, as an immigrant myself, um, we have to build relationships and understand what's happening and really understand how we can help these people thrive. Um, I don't think anyone wants to create harm. I just, I honestly think people just want to be able to live and work with dignity. Yeah. It's really it. And care for their family, their children. And, um, you know, you weren't asked to be where you were born. You were just given that birthplace. And it just happens to be some people are very lucky and privileged and some people, you know, um, are desperate for a better life. And I yeah. understand that. I probably, like many people, am, am often ignorant as to what a lot of my local levels of government do. <laughs> so is there a way to kind of sum up what uh, a council person does? Yeah, the role of a city council person uh, is to represent your constituents in your district. There are 51 city council members, and my district is District 33 that goes from uh, downtown Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights, 
up along the East River waterfront up to Greenpoint. So it's a very vast district. It's, yeah. You can't compare every single neighborhood. In Greenpoint, you have the Polish immigrants who came to the U.S. for economic opportunity. Then you have the wealthier neighborhoods like Dumbo, you know, and um, Brooklyn Heights, et cetera. So it's, it's very... Um, it's very vast and different, and the economic opportunities are different, too, for everybody. Um, as a city council person, the role is constituent services. A lot of it is working and figuring out what you can do to help your community members, but um, also to create legislation, and that requires working with the other members throughout mm -hmm. city council to pass local laws that help benefit the greater whole of New York City, all 8 million-plus residents. Um, land use, we do make decisions on if a developer gets to develop in an area or gets to rezone. Um, those are some of the most um, critical roles of city council and also appointing community board members and um, advocacy, like advocating for immigration rights, advocating for equal pay. Um, you have a strong voice and you can work with your state um, assembly members, senators, and the governor to really push for something that benefits New York City, but New York as a whole, too. Yeah. Uh, what is, I guess, the relationship then to the mayor? Is there... Oh, yes. And the mayor. <laughs> do, well, do, do all of the council members almost have like, like, a, like a Senate session where like everybody meets to vote on a law or how does that yeah, work? Yeah, so you can propose a law and send it to, it's sort of just like um, the presidential. Mm. Um, you can, uh, the city council members can propose a law. It's the bill is sponsored by X number of city council members. You pass it to the mayor and the mayor can choose to veto it or accept it. And if he vetoes it, it comes back and then you have to get a majority Whoa. to sign on to override his veto. Okay. So um, it's, yeah, it, that's, that's what, um, and the mayor, you know, oversees a lot of things. And, um, but city council members can sit on committees or are, are required to sit on committees. So that's one way to also um, ensure that your voice is heard in your district in different committee um, positions. The diversity issue is really interesting. Like, if, if people aren't from New York, maybe they don't realize that there are neighborhoods and pockets of neighborhoods that, like you said, go all the way back to when people first immigrated here. And, like, the section of Williamsburg that I live in is entirely Hasidic. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it is true that different neighborhoods might have their own political beliefs, opinions, needs. And so I would imagine that would be tricky <laughs> it is, to, it is. to meet the needs of everybody. It is. And, you know, I respect um, every single religion choice people make. I don't care how you eat, love, pray, but we're a community and we got to work together. Um, it's, it's, it's fractured. Mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, the pandemic has really shined the spotlight on the inequities that people are facing in regards to food insecurity, unemployment, um, housing insecurity, and lack of services because we had to cut our budget, you know, due to the lack of money and also the budget deficit that, you know, we've encountered. And we're starting to see those ramifications of budget cuts. For example, 
the park's budget was cut by $85 million. And people are like, oh my God, things are so dirty. Where are the trash cans? Where are the people cleaning up, you know, as you know, probably in Domino Park, McCarran Park, you see a lot of trash everywhere. It's because we had to cut the budget. Uh. And um, food insecurity too. Um, pantries are overloaded with people. Having to work at, a, I'm working at a food pantry or not working, but volunteer. I volunteered at Food Pantry Weekly, and the numbers spiked during the pandemic. And even though the city's reopening up, it's still a need because people still don't have jobs. Things are not back to the way they are yet. Right. So I, I wanted to discuss some of those issues with you and kind of pick your brain. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, a pretty large snowfall that happened this last winter, and trash collection didn't come by for a while, there's nowhere to put snow in New York. So it piles up where often the trash cans are. And if they're buried under snow, you can't unload them into a car. I feel like where I live since that point, it's been a mess. Like I've been going out since the start of the pandemic by the Williamsburg Library mm-hmm. twice a week to just pick up trash. And actually it's, it's Parks Department folks that come by by like the basketball fields and stuff and they'll um, empty out the garbage receptacles that are there. And one day I was talking with one of them because she was like, oh, do you work for the city? And I was like, I just live here and I'm kind of tired of this trash. And, and I think part of it is like we can do a better job of the system of trash collection in New York. And part of it is just like, hey, let's be good citizens. We don't need our government to tell us not to like pull up to the side of the road and empty all the trash from our car out. Um, but two things I've seen are like in Washington, D.C., you pass every house and they all have like a garbage can that says like property of DC government or whatever. So everybody receives one from, I guess, the city. And then I know that like in Korea, it might seem kind of oppressive, but they have like really uh, harsh trash collection laws where like you can, you can get fined if you're not pretty uh, heavily if you're not doing it correctly. Yeah, and in some countries, they don't have trash cans outside. Right. Because you bring the trash home. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, like, do you have any sort of idea of, like, what maybe we can do better as sort of, like, the like system of municipalities for trash collection? We have to look at it in two different ways. Or there are two parts to sanitation. There's residential trash, and then there's commercial sanitation or trash, right? Yeah. A lot of our um, uh, garbage comes from commercial, and commercial includes restaurants, corporate Amer- corporate buildings, etc. And the, a lot of that is run by private companies mm. to pick up that trash. And then the stuff that you see on the streets and the residential stuff, that is the New York City sanitation. And um, what New York City does is that it outsources some of the tra- um, trash collection um, for the corporate and so, well, and sanitation budget was cut. That was one of the first things that de Blasio cut. And that's why you saw all that trash during the snowstorm, or, and you see trash now. We don't have enough workers out there. And, we, and as the city opens back up, you're gonna start seeing more trash because people are getting out. I, I believe that there should be better receptacles outside. Um, there are those solar panel ones that are really good that smash it down. They're all over Philadelphia, and I've seen a few here and there. But there's not enough manpower, and that's what we're seeing. And that's why you're going out and picking up trash. I'm picking up trash myself as one block Brooklyn, like this whole movement thing. Um, right now, I think we just got to... Um, take care of each other, but also in hopes that 
I have hope that the city will come back and that people will get back to work and that we can restore our budget again. Yeah, I th it sounds maybe silly, but if you like read books about like civilizations in decline or like you know post-industrial cities, often like there you you sell off and privatize the things that were public. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and then you cut budgets and. Yeah, I mean... I mean, you, you read about it. You know, the Staten Island people who control the trash. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's true. It's happening. But there's an idea out there that to help alleviate all that trash and the traffic and the environmental impact of it is um, having these companies, these private companies, be able to... Um, um, uh, select a specific shift and route mm. and certain hours of the day so there's no congestion it's not like you're not dealing with pedestrians and trash maybe trash is only picked up at night you know um, as a way to help with quality of life um, but I mean there are proposals out there but the next mayor whoever that is has to manage this um, really well because um, I, the biggest complaint I get from people uh, dog poop mm -hmm. <laughs> trash at the parks especially in the Williamsburg smorgasbord you guys name it and um, rats rats have been a big issue and I, I see them and it's because we have trash everywhere yeah and people are eating outdoors or outdoor seatings you know and I understand that I love the outdoor seating but also there's food crumbs that you just can't help and it's um, it's like rat heaven right now it's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a gentleman on who breeds hunting dogs, and he comes into this. He's, he lives in Jersey, but he comes into the city, and they use the hunting dogs to kill rats. <laughs> yeah, well, and also, we don't want to use any chemicals that could endanger dogs right. or people's pets or children who are out and about. Um, but there has to be some control of it, and the one of the ways to control it is to restore our sanitation budget. Yeah. I don't know any of the specifics of this, but I know you've been doing uh, work or ideas on the BQE, mm -hmm. one of the most frustrating roads in America. Yes. Um, what's that all about? Uh, the BQE is a Brooklyn Queens Expressway, and right now there's a dire emergency that needs to be fixed. The city owns a part of the um, tri-level cantilever. And it's, it's an artery for businesses, right? For people that connect Staten Island, South Williamsburg, or, you know, Sunset Park all the way to South Williamsburg and up into Queens, right? And um, that infrastructure is crumbling and it could literally probably collapse in the next 10 years. And so I've been involved in it and ensuring that we could rethink what infrastructure looks like in New York City and um, not just have it be like this pavement or highway, but actually connecting it to a, making it become a greenway belt that connects communities to the waterfront and, have, mm. and creates economic vitality. But also, we've seen greenway belts, sort of like a tunnel or faux tunnel, be able to absorb the um, hazard uh, pollution that comes from cars. Um, and also... In South Williamsburg, the neighborhood you, you know, an area you live in, they have the third highest rate of asthma in New York City. And the BQE is part of it. 
And I think that it's a racist design that Robert Moses did, and it needs to be dismantled. And we need to get rid of it and think of something more green where people can bike, walk, use it as a way of transportation to um, a green transportation as a way to connect to another subway stop or a busway, you know, um, where there are uh, transportation desert areas. And, um, and it's, it's, it's divided communities and it shouldn't. And I live next to the BQE and I breathe it, I see it. I don't even open my windows because of all the soot that comes in every single day. And it's, this is New York City. We right. should be thinking bigger and with the Biden's in infrastructure $1 trillion deal, I mean, give us 10, you know, 10 billion. We can build something really good that helps everybody. Yeah. Well, I'd like more than 10 billion, you know what I mean? <laughs> but the, the cantilever itself is like approximately $5 billion for the designs that are out there for the Greenway Belt design. And the DOE wanted to, or the DOT, excuse me, wanted to build a six lane highway for that same amount that would have been a butt to the homes and the parkways. It, like, it's ridiculous. So it's on hold. And, you know, that's my biggest thing that I will fight for for our community is to ensure that we get something that we deserve and that has, um, that protects our health. It's a health crisis. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, like I mentioned, we've been looking for an apartment and some of the best ones that we see are either along the BQE or are along the J train. And it's like, I, we're just like, we, we can't, like, I don't. I don't want to not be able to open my windows. Yeah, imagine if you could, like, imagine a beautiful green berm, you know, with, like, pedestrian walkways and bikeways that you can actually feel safe going to and um, from one neighborhood to the next. The cars are underneath. Like, we got to think differently. We can't keep having it be so car-centric. Mm. I get it that... People use it as a way to transport goods. I'm not saying get rid of the BQE. I'm just saying let's build it in a very different way that will help us meet our climate goals as a city and state. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I'll, I'll give two book recommendations for people. For Robert Moses, this book is humongous. Oh, yeah, that power. But the power broker, <laughs> yep. um, if you want to understand more what April was just talking about, but also the, the color of law yep. points out how the segregation of the different cities, yeah, uh, neighborhoods, yeah, and it's how a, a lot problem. of early housing was set up either industrial areas or yeah, like right next to locations that otherwise would be undesirable due to environmental hazards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, like Guanas right now, they're dealing with a rezoning area and um, they're trying to build, and some people are proposing to build low-income housing on top of sort of like a hazardous environmental super fun site. Like, yeah. why do the why should it only be for black and brown people that should live on hazardous land? That's right. horrible. No one should live on hazardous right. land. <laughs> I mean, that's just ridiculous. But anyways, this, this is obviously is, is a bit loaded because uh, across the country, I, I travel a lot and I go to a lot of cities. And every city I go to, homelessness to me feels like it's on the rise. Again, we're looking for an apartment. It's really expensive living in New York City. Uh, I talk to a lot of people who are chefs who own restaurants and they don't last long. Um, 
I was just in Kentucky and they were like, yeah, it's so easy to open up a restaurant here because we don't have your New York rents. That's what I'm really scared of here. Yeah. I'm scared of the, when I describe it as a Texas, like what happened in California, the carnage, because they weren't business friendly and people left and jobs are being created in Austin and Florida, et cetera. New York City makes it so hard for people to want to become entrepreneurs or start their small businesses. A majority of the people that serve us and the retailers are small business owners, they're mom and pop shops. They maybe own one restaurant and um, 80% of them in Brooklyn have lost revenue. A third of them are behind on back rent. You know, they can't pay their rent and they're suffering. They were also employing people they're also trying to keep themselves, you know, fed and pay their bills and stuff. And um, I wish one of the things that I would like to do is to really eliminate the red tape for people to be able to start their businesses mm. and to help revitalize the economy and make it easier. The processing time is just too long and people give up and it's expensive and it's hard. Um, did you know that in New York City to start a business, one thing that you have to do is you have to post about your business in three separate um, print, print newspapers, and you don't get to choose where those um, announcements go as, a, as one of the requirements for starting a business in New York City. That's so strange. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Why? Who knows? I don't know who wrote that law, but I, I want to get rid of that. <laughs> That's one thing. Yeah, and, you know, I read this book. There's two books, and the gentleman's name escapes me, but it was What's the Matter with Kansas and Listen Liberal. And in What's the Matter with Kansas, it, it, he discovers sort of like the, the funding for modern conservatism and like sort of like evangelical thinking. And one of the things that folks would do to talk about like liberal New Yorkers is to call them like latte people, right? To say that, like, oh, they've got all this excess income to buy, like, expensive lattes all the time. I'm here drinking a nice coffee, yeah. and I'm shopping local, and it is going to be more expensive than if I go to Dunkin' Donuts. Mm -hmm. It's also going to be more delicious than if I go to Dunkin' yeah, Donuts. Yeah, the quality is way up there, but also you're supporting a woman-owned business. Right. You know, and, um, and I'm so glad that, you know, One Girl's Cookie, I have to give them a shout-out because I do love their coffee and their whoopie pies here. <laughs> Um, but, you know, they're struggling, but they also, like, the, the, the restaurant business or just the food industry makes billions of dollars for this city. And, of course, a latte is going to cost you six bucks, seven bucks, because rent is too damn high. And that's my point. <laughs> you know, it has to be this price. Where we're located right now, I can't imagine what this piece of land costs. And, you know... I maybe am drinking a $5 coffee and, and they're scraping to get the rent paid for. The profit margins are, they're scraping by. They're, the profit margins are low and this is what they love. And, you know, when we support a small business owner, we're also supporting their dreams and we're supporting other people's dreams who they employ. Yeah. I mean, it's, and we need more of it. Yeah, and I guess to me, it's all sort of, I'm lumping all these issues into into high rent prices. Um, yes, rent is too damn high. You yeah. heard it. And you'll hear from everybody else, too. Who was that guy that ran for mayor that just oh, ran on yeah, the Oh, yeah, he had the car and everything. Rent is too yeah. damn high. 
Um, and, and, you know, part of that, I, I mentioned homelessness. Yes. And I, I often find myself, you know, th- there's not a, a, a train ride I take where some, somebody's not coming up and asking for change. And I find myself, after like a hard day at work, taking the hour, hour train back home, just not wanting to talk to anybody and, mm-hmm. and, and feeling unempathetic in that moment. And when I step back from it, I'm just like, oh my God, like we, we have to be treating everyone with empathy and, and there has to be something better we can do. And, and I think, again, the sort of calloused view that some people take is like, well, if people end up in that situation, it's from their own dooming. And maybe, but often no. No. And yeah. at the same time, even if it is, does that mean that we just throw people to the wolves? Yeah. Um, and again, it's complicated tough. because there are people who are, uh, if you want to say housing insecure or on the street, mm-hmm. and they do have mental instability or they, they need help. And it's very complicated. But yeah. it, 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 I'm wondering, like, can we have, like, a, I don't know, like public showers, public restrooms? I don't know. Yes, um, you know, that's the, when we see homelessness, we see people sleeping on the streets, but there are also others who are in homeless shelters who actually do have a job, who are trying to survive and who are trying to get um, a, a real home placements, right? Um, some of the ideas that I propose is that um, we're not going to solve the homeless issue. You know, there's never going to be... We're never going to get rid of homelessness. I do that. That's just a reality. But we can provide the services to help them: um, mental health services, uh, job um, services, or employment services. Um, but we have to re- be there where they're at, and we can't expect them to come to us. Like we got to help them, and like you said, we got to be compassionate and um, and have empathy. And that's why, like what makes me upset when I see homeless um, individuals out there is like, I'm like, where's my f- damn taxpayers dollars going? Like I'm paying taxes because I want to help individuals. I, I'm here to like make the city even better and have people to be able to actually live, like you said, with dignity. And so some of the ideas is like, why doesn't the city, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of, um, empty, vacant hotels. Let's convert them into homes. Let's convert them into um, home, temporary homes and get these people back in, you know, shape in, in regards to the services that they need and bring them back. They're, they're also our neighbors and they're a part of a society and we shouldn't shun them out. It's a very complex, complicated issue yeah. and I think it's um, providing them the services what they need and every single person is different. Uh, you know, it's it's tough. Yeah, I, I'm going to simplify this, and I know this isn't simple, but I think both sides of, like, the political aisle have very common interests and needs. Yeah. <laughs> um, people could definitely push me on this, but I think sort of, like, the economic root of those folks who are rioting at the Capitol, some of them are not so different from the folks on the other side of the argument who are demanding uh, justice and fair treatment and rights. 
And if everyone could kind of rally behind that and we could really push to reallocate funds if it comes from the defense budget or something, then there's an opportunity. But we're so divided, and I think there's such a distrust in government right now that I'm wondering, how do we do that? Like, how do we bring people together? And how do we change government to where it can be trusted, I guess? Yeah, and you know, that's, I think uh, the lack of trust is also the lack of transparency. I think that's what people are really concerned about. And also, um, we need leaders, like you said, who lead with empathy and compassion. I understand that in politics, there's a lot of negotiations happening. You got to wheel and deal, whatever. Hopefully, you'll stick to your ethics and um, integrity. But um, but we got to understand at the crux or at the visceral level what's happening. Mm. And um, I agree with you. The people who write in at the White House. At the, um, at the Capitol, and um, those of us who are like, oh man, where's our taxpayers' dollars? You know, they're they're also in need of services too. Yeah. And when it hits your pocketbook, and you're realizing, oh my God, I have no money to be able to put food on the table. <laughs> Liberals and Republicans, or Democrats and Republicans, we're all struggling. Uh, it just happens to be we believe in different. Parties, mm. you know, um, it's it's tough. I I I just hope that the that the 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 people we elect and which is really important at the local level all the way to the federal level are representatives of who we think can really um, make things happen on both sides of the aisle. And I think logically, it would if we're coming together, it would have to start at the local level, at a micro level, because you're you're never going to get 380 people, 380 million people overnight yeah. to just like all of a sudden agree. It probably will be a long, probably painful process. Yeah, not everyone agrees with me, and I get it. Like, I mean, there's you know, people are anti-development, but I do believe in development. I believe in responsible development and having more diverse portfolios in regards to smaller developers mm-hmm. who have a higher stake at it rather than just large developers taking over. Um, and some people, um, you know, don't believe in public-private partnerships. But when done right, it could be done in a really good way that actually benefits people. But you got to be able to negotiate and you got to um, make sure that there are no empty promises. Yeah, and I think especially in New York, I don't know if it's fair to say like New York's underbelly, but, you know, I, since I was a teen, have been coming to the city to see like punk bands play and, and, and there's artists and there's, there's people that live here because they have their communities of like-minded people, and they are not mainstream communities. They're, they're niche, they are underground, and people are fearful of that being taken away. I think that's why sometimes people are um, maybe against that development that you speak of. So I think the balance is always like, how can we improve upon things mm-hmm. while not um, either pricing out or sort of like, shrink wrapping everything to where people don't have their art and their music and the things that made them want to live in New York in the first yeah, place. No, I, yeah, no, and that's what makes New York so special. Yeah. Are the artists, are the, um, uh, the culture that's here. I'm not saying that like, 
my ideas are going to push any of these people out. But we have to also think about, like I said, diversifying the portfolio and putting in um, different type of companies in that have higher stake in it. Mm -hmm. Like they have to listen to the community or the community can just really just run them over and be like, see ya, Mm -hmm. you're not going to survive here. Um, I think one of the biggest things is community engagement and um, transparency. Um, we need more of that. Um, it's so one of my things that I harp back on as a citizen and growing up and um, is that why is it so hard to find information on how to get something in this city? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I want to put a stop sign up at a corner where kids almost got get ran over and I have to like dig through five different online pages to be able to fill out a form. Why is it so difficult to apply for schools? Imagine you being, English is your second language, and the only internet you have is on your mobile phone, which is a majority of a lot of low-income people. That's what I do with every day. Yeah. Yeah. Our websites are not mobile-friendly, and they don't make it easy, and the translation isn't always there. I'm like, how do we make the public goods even more accessible Mm. for people. We're paying into this. It should be easy. So my whole thing is for District 33 is a one-stop shop. You will know when a developer wants to come to the table and do stuff. You won't hear about it, you know, five months down the road. Um, I want to be your one-stop shop for when um, you need help to apply for SNAP services. Mm. Like, you're not going to just talk to an operator, but there are people there to help you. And I think that's what we're missing is that humanity and yeah. also the touch of like, you don't always have to be on Twitter to find information. Like not everyone's on Twitter. Like we should be out on the ground handing out information. We should be mailing people. We should be doing all different types of forms of outreach. And that is through faith-based organizations, nonprofits, et cetera, to really get the message out with where the people are at. Yeah, And it just happens to be the World Wide Web is one way, but it's not always accessible to a lot of people in our city. And I'm not just saying this because you're here, but your website's awesome. Thank like, you. Really informative. And I love the um, like people of the District 33. District 33, yeah. I found a Thai place I didn't know existed that has cow soy in yes. Greenpoint, so I'm going to go there. <laughs> Little Tiffin, it's so close to you. Yeah, you yeah. should go. She opened during the pandemic. Oh, amazing. It's delicious. Um, I started that because... I was like in my apartment during a pandemic with two kids and I was like, how do I reach out and really get to understand at the visceral level what people are going through as I started, as I was trying to craft my platform because I didn't release my platform that early because I was just, I wanted to better understand what every person is struggling with and it's just not from my perspective too. And that's how I crafted my platform was Mm. around the people I interviewed, but also other constituents I spoke to offline and reading, you know, and, um, and it's, it's the, those are the the people that I got to interview and just talk to are the people I'm like fighting for and working for, um, whatever happens happens. And I, I'm not leaving the city. This is home. Like my kids are Brooklynites. I say this (laughs) at every forum and everything, you know, I may not, have been born in Brooklyn, but I was made for Brooklyn and my children were made in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like I've been grilling you. No and, um Obviously, this is an incredibly busy time. I think we mentioned at the outset that early voting starts tomorrow. 
So I'll wrap this, but I do want to send people to find out more about you and the causes you support. Where can they go to do that? Yeah, so I'm um, at aprilsambun.com, S-O-M-B-O-U-N. And you can find me on Instagram, April Sambun, and all the social media. And um, uh, I would like to give a shout out to a cause that I support. I support um, two, um, Legacies of War, mm-hmm. who you know about. Um, they um, help get rid of the UXL bombs um, throughout Laos. And also um, a shout out to the Brooklyn Book Bodega. They are a nonprofit and I'm a board member and they provide free books to children so they can have a library in their own homes Whoa. and have ownership and help with the literacy rates here in New York City. Incredible organization. Wow. You've also endorsed a mayoral choice or no? I did. Um, I crossed endorsed um, with Ray McGuire, okay. whom I think will be the best mayor for New York City. Um, and him and I have personally spoken and multiple times we've canvassed, but also we've spoken one-on-one before even cross endorsing each other to ensure that our values align. And I think he's, he's brilliant. His upbringing is very interesting, raised by a single mom with little means. And I'm, and I'm impressed by his business acumen, but also, um, he understands it from you know having nothing to where he is today, and I, and I think that it would be really great to have a black man mm. in seat to help really um, bring our community together. And he's just a really smart person. I hope he does win. So rank Ray number one and rank April number <laughs> one and for city council. Got to put in that plug. <laughs> awesome. Well, if you're in Brooklyn, if you're in New York City, make sure you vote. If you're outside of the city. Maybe you've identified with some of the things that we've talked about. Um, I will link to the website that you mentioned directly in whatever player you're listening to right now. Um, And I will be voting and I will be ranking you one. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, thanks for doing this. I know it's a busy time and I'm a stranger, so I appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. I love meeting new people and um, we're going to go out and eat some Lao food. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, cool. No, seriously, we will (laughs) after everything's done. Cheers. All right, that is a wrap on episode 232 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. It's great to meet April. It's great to share her story. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you to all of you Voyagers out there, as always, for tuning in, for reaching out, all that good stuff. This is the summer of Timmy. This is going to be a really good summer. I want to go all over the place. So if you have recommendations, I'm open to hearing them. And hey, I'm vaccinated. I hope you're vaccinated. We're back out there. So I'd love to meet you. I'd love to hear from you. Reach out on social media. Give me a follow. Send me an email. I like to connect with people. Heading to Maryland tomorrow. We'll see. I have maybe an episode coming out from there. But I'm also going to do an interview where I'm the interviewee, which has only happened like once so far. So that's kind of unique to be on the other side of the mic. Um, that's going to be for my dad's radio program down there. So I don't know. We'll see if I can maybe either get that audio or, or link you all to that in the future. And I'll connect that to my Patreon account and all that stuff too. So, all right, folks, enjoy almost summer. I hope it's, it's your summer as well, but this is going to be the summer of Timmy signing off as always, please take care of each other. Peace. Mm-hmm.